This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you all. This is Darren Lester with The Breakfast Show, and today we are talking picture books, comic books, and all things children's literature with my guest, Tim Hughes. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And a very good morning to you all on this Saturday, the 23rd of July, 2022. I am Darren Lester and I am your host for breakfast this morning. I do hope that you've all got something delicious to share, to munch on while we are chatting today. Um, I personally have just finished my breakfast, to be honest, because I didn't want the show to turn into some kind of ASMR channel where you were listening to me eat and drink. So I've just finished my coffee and I have just finished my um, Cherry Bakewell, which again, if you were in last week, you will know that breakfast is not exactly my healthiest meal of the day, but um, it's something that I enjoy, which is, uh, which is really what it's all about. What a week it has been since my last show, since our last show together. Um, the UK has experienced its hottest temperatures on record. We were pushing the 40 degrees um, Celsius, which is something that our country is not at all equipped to, do, to, to deal with. Um, if you're not from the UK, if you've never visited us, um, because of where we are in the world, our houses tend to be built to, um, to retain heat. Uh, because we have usually very mild summers and very cold winters. So they are they're built to make sure that the heat is trapped, uh, which is fine most of the year. But on Monday and Tuesday of this week, where again we were pushing the 40s in Celsius, it's um, not exactly the easiest the easiest temperatures to be living and working in. I personally am very grateful because I did not have to teach this week. I'm already on summer. So I was able to just sit back in front of my fan because again, if you're not in the UK, um, air conditioning is not a standard here. Um, it's not something that we have very, very often or in very, very many places. Um, and so I was very grateful to not be in school this week to just be able to sit with my fan with a nice ice drink and enjoy the weather as much as I could. Not that the weather has been massively enjoyable for everybody. Um, I know in certain parts of the UK, particularly in London, we've had wildfires. Um, I know that the the fire rescue services were kind of pushed to their limits over the past uh, few days. And so my condolences go out to anybody who has lost their homes. Um, as far as I know, nobody lost their lives. We are grateful for that. Um, and I, I hope that remains the case, but I do hope that people are able to get themselves together and rebuild as quickly as they can. 
Um, this week we have also seen, and I talk about this a little bit in my interview a bit later on, we've seen Roehampton University announce the closure of a lot of its, mm, no I say a lot, that's not fair, with of some of its um, humanities courses, including classics. Um, I am a classicist, uh, that's, that's one of my disciplines, and so I was very sad, very sad to see that go. Um, this could be a, a whole show of its own, and um, my guest Tim Hughes and I will talk about this uh, during his interview. But we need to, as as teachers, we need to make sure that we are aware of what's happening in universities, because of course, as universities close down their courses, those of us who teach sixth form, who teach A level, um, could potentially lose those classes as well because what's the point of having a classics a level for example if the students cannot go on to do classics a little bit later on um when i heard the news on thursday i tweeted out about it about how i'm i'm not a, a stem person um technically that's not true because i remembered after i tweeted that that when i got my master's degree in applied linguistics i was actually allowed to um, to take it as an msc because linguistics is classed as, as a science. Uh, I kind of wish that I had now, because I think it would have been quite nice to have the full set, to get an MSc, an MED, and an MA. Um, but at the time, I thought, well, I don't want people to think that I know about the traditional sciences, you know, about physics and biology and chemistry. I don't want to give the wrong impression. Um, so I took the MED classification instead. But as somebody who at school, you know, I was fine with with maths and English, but I, uh, sorry, with maths and science. But I was very much an English, a languages, a classics person. Um, I would have struggled. I probably wouldn't have gone to university at all if the humanities subjects started to disappear or if they had started disappearing while I was at university. So I think this is something, even if you're not a classicist, the, the closure of of these courses is something that we all need to be aware of that we all need to um, keep an eye on because it is something of course that is going to affect everybody at some point in the near future of course i wish roehampton well um, and i hope that whatever financial um, implications this has for them whatever financial decisions had to be made when they were closing down all of these departments because classics is not the only one that's um that's affected it's just the one that I took most notice of, of course, as a classicist. Um, I hope that they are able to get their financial situation um, in a place where they would like it. And I hope that perhaps they would reconsider opening the classics, reopening the classics in the future. On to perhaps more joyful news. <laughs> um, this is actually a reboot of last week's show. Thank you to all of you who tuned in last week. Um, I very much appreciated it. You will have realized that we encountered some gremlins somewhere along the way. And about an hour into my show, when I was interviewing my, my guest, uh, Tim, um, we disappeared. Uh, I still actually don't know what happened. I think it was possibly my Wi-Fi cut out, which was a shame. Um, and it was a shame because we had some good conversations going on both here with people who were texting in please do text in if you would like to join in the conversation today i am more than happy to hear your your views to hear your ideas um and on twitter if you would like to join in via twitter you can my handle is at mr d lester l-e-s-t-e-r so you can tweet directly at me i've got twitter open as we speak and 
you can use the hashtag TT Radio to make sure that all of your tweets are seen. I would love it if you joined in with us today. So I am rebooting, I am rebooting last week's show on comic books, picture books, and the the power of children's literature, whether we should consider comic books and picture books literature, and if indeed they can be considered good literature. This is actually quite timely because we've got um, San Diego Comic-Con happening at the moment. I am not live to you from San Diego Comic-Con. I am live to you from a rather cloudy Gloucester right now. Maybe next year, maybe next year I could do a a trip to San Diego and we could come live from Comic-Con. But as it is, we will just have to be discussing comics um, from my little studio, my little office, where we are today. It's a very interesting topic, in my opinion, and I hope in yours too, because we always have this this debate. And again, this doesn't actually matter which stage you teach at, um, whether you are a nursery teacher, an, uh, an early years practitioner, all the way up to those of you who teach A-level, um, and even if we have any university lecturers in our audience today, we are all about reading. We want to get our students to read. I think that's probably the one thing, the one uh, piece of practice that all teachers can agree on is the importance of reading, the power of reading, both for learning and for pleasure. And so we have some very interesting ideas, some very interesting com- comments about this. For me, comic books are amazing for getting people to read, particularly reluctant readers. Now, I explained last week that um, this show was born from a publication from the Canadian government, um, Ontario, I believe it was, who put out put out this publication um, all about how we can improve boys' literacy rates. Now, I don't want to play into the binary. I did last week. Um, where we talked about how we can get boys reading and the the publication itself actually did talk about boys reading i kind of want to uh move away from that this week so i'm not going to talk about boys reading versus girls reading um i'm just going to talk about reluctant readers because you know in my opinion while we can draw these broad strokes and say that boys are less likely to read for pleasure than girls um there are all sorts of nuances in there that we don't take into account so Uh, Instead, I'm just going to talk about reluctant readers and perhaps how we can get our reluctant readers to read. And the honest fact of the matter is, as the the publication, which I will will retweet um, a little bit later on, um, as that pointed out, our reluctant readers actually are readers. They do read things. They read comic books, perhaps. They read Twitter they read the captions on Instagram. They might read the back of the cereal box as they are eating in the mornings. They are readers. They just don't consider themselves to be readers. You know, the ones who sit there with their football stickers, um, before we have to ban the football stickers for, for causing too many arguments, they will flick through their album and they will read the stats. We've seen students who might not go and pick up a um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid book, but who will rush straight for the Guinness Book of World Records. 
So literature for children, literature for young people, is all about finding things that we can get our young people interested in. And that's kind of the, the approach that I'm taking. I had an interesting tweet come in last week that I kind of addressed and, and, and kind of didn't. And I'm very, very sorry if this was you. Um, I've tried going back through my Twitter to find your message, um, but I was unable to. Um, so please do let me know if that was you. But somebody pointed out last week that reading things like comic books, reading um, football cards, reading baseball cards, which was the example in, in the Canadian publication, that doesn't teach children the, um, the long-term concentration skills that perhaps we require and is perhaps are perhaps one of the things that we, we look for when we are teaching reading. And that's absolutely true. Um, I'm not here today to argue that reading a 30-page issue of X-Men is going to teach the same retention, is going to teach the same concentration skills as giving somebody war and peace. Um, but what I am suggesting is that, particularly for those of us who teach down the age range, I'm thinking for those of, for those of us that teach at key stages one and two, um, but even those of us who have reluctant readers at key stages three and four, maybe teaching these um, the retention and teaching the concentration skills is something completely different. I think that's a whole different domain to getting our children to understand that reading can be a pleasurable activity, that reading can be something that they want to do. And I think that by allowing our students to read comics, to read magazines, to read picture books when they are 14 years old. Because why not? Why are we so insistent, or why, I'm sorry, why can we be, I'm trying to avoid broad strokes, why can we be so insistent on gatekeeping what people read? I, um, I was watching a lifestyle vlogger earlier this week who was kind of reflecting on their goals for the year. Um, and they mentioned that they had a goal of reading five books in 2022. Um, I have, for full disclosure, I've read 83 books so far, although I am going to say that a lot of those are comic books and some of them have been audiobooks. Um, and I've had this discussion with people in my book club about whether you've actually read something if it was an audiobook. That's a whole different show, once again. Um, um, but I, I read the comments on this video where, where the, the vlogger set their goals. And people were saying, well, if your goal in a whole year is to read five books, you clearly don't really want to read. So why don't you just give up the idea? And I thought that was really sad. Because... I think that anything that we can do to encourage anybody to read, whether that be one book over the year, whether that be 100, that's my personal goal for the year is 100. So I'm glad to be 80, whatever it was, 83% there already. Um, I don't think it matters. The quantity does not matter. What matters is about making sure that everybody understands that reading can be a pleasurable activity even if you don't consider yourself to be a reader. And I think that we shouldn't be disparaging of an adult who wants to read five books, because maybe that's all they have time for. Maybe they like books that are 500 pages long, and so their five books altogether will ultimately come to more pages than my 100 issues of comics. 
Maybe they like to read in their fourth or fifth language. And so it takes them that little bit longer to get through a book. Does that matter, actually, as long as they are enjoying themselves? And I think ultimately, for me, that's the crux of it, is that we should be getting our learners to read for pleasure. Because actually, if we can encourage them to read for pleasure, we can start looking for books in our subject domains that we can then encourage them to read. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this um, later on this morning, because I've got some teaching ideas that I kind of want to, um, to run past people. But I think no matter what subject we teach, we can find fiction, we can find non-fiction, certainly, that we can encourage our readers to read for pleasure, or at least to read outside the classroom. But the only way they're actually going to buy into that, the only way they are going to do that, is if we... Very sorry about that. Is if we make sure they understand that reading can be a pleasurable activity. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. If you have a passion for education and a talent for teaching and learning, the Witherslack Group want to hear from you. Join them as they open an incredible new school in Essex and be a founding teacher of English, Maths, Science or Primary with multiple leadership opportunities available too. As Teachers Talk Radio partners, we know how much they care about the well-being of staff and their offer to you will be superb. To find out more and apply for a role, visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Several media outlets report on a 72-hour walkout planned by staff at exam board AQA, which could affect the delivery of GCSE and A-level results. The walkout was announced by Unison in a row over pay, with the union saying staff are struggling to make ends meet because of successive below inflation pay awards. Employees set to strike include those involved in organising the awarding of grades for both GCSE and A-level exams. 
The three-day action will take place from Friday the 29th to Sunday the 31st of July. Unison warns that industrial action could escalate unless talks reopen. The Manchester Evening News reports on comments made by the Conservative leader on Bury Council as he launched an attack on teachers, rail workers and junior doctors who may consider striking for better pay. Russell Bernstein, opposition leader on the council, said, shame on any teacher who takes strike action, and suggested those who did would be ignoring their responsibilities. He criticised possible strike action at a time when children and young people had finally begun to think about having a normal school year, after two years of disruption due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Labour councillors for Bury dismissed his comments as childish and out of touch. With many schools breaking up today, regional news outlets are providing parents and carers with details of activities on offer this summer. In Essex, the council is encouraging people to think outside the car and features activities which can easily be reached by bike, on foot or using public transport. In Islington, the council's Heatwave summer programme offers free, fun, educational activities for all ages including Caribbean cooking, poetry, filmmaking, roller skating, special effects makeup and animal care. Whilst in Stoke-on-Trent, the Pottery Shopping Centre is opening an indoor beach, complete with deck chairs just in time for the summer holidays. The beach is free of charge and open to anyone. A check of local council and media outlets is a good place to start for ideas this summer. From today onwards, UK degrees will be recognised as the equivalent to degrees from universities in India. The Government of India signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the UK Government, which will allow those taking a degree in the UK to be eligible for employment in India. Those with Indian university degrees will be also treated on a par with UK degree holders and eligible for jobs in the UK too. It is hoped the arrangement will bring a much needed boost to the UK economy. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to support a question everyone will see at the start of next year. It goes something like this. Hi Edu Twitter, can you reply with where you are so I can show my class how far a post on the internet can reach? With a bit of free tech? you can make this much more visual. I'm going to use Google Maps because it's free and most likely you'll have used Google Maps at some point in the past. So when you have all your responses, sign into Google, go to Maps and click on the menu next to the search box. That's the three lines that look like a burger. From the menu, select My Places. You'll now have four options, Lists, Labeled, Visited, and maps. Click on maps and at the bottom select create map. Now you can give the map a title so you can find it next year for comparison and add all the places from your Twitter replies. Simply type the name of the place. When it appears with a blue point marker you can click the plus sign to add it to the map and then select the colour to help it stand out. When you've finished all places will be saved and you can access the map by following the first few steps. Menu, My Places, Maps. There are loads of other great tools to use also. Measure the distance from your school to those places. Hit preview and go into the view only mode. Here you can select a place and you treat it to a short bio and an image of the area. So next time you're looking to bring a lesson to life, why not try using maps to help pupils see where places are in the world? Do you have any top tips for mapping? Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
So I caught up with Tim Hughes earlier in the week. Um, I've got a, um, a recorded interview for us to listen to this morning. However, if you have any questions about what we discuss, if you've got any comments, please do still text in. If you are listening to us live on the Podbean app, you can just text your comments. I will see them straight away. Alternatively, if you are not on the Podbean app, you're listening to us elsewhere, you can tweet me. That's at Mr. D. Lester, L-E-S-T-E-R. And throughout the week, I will keep an eye on any questions that you have that I will get Tim to answer for us. Without further ado, this is what happened when I caught up earlier this week with children's literature specialist Tim Hughes. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on Teacher Talk Radio again this morning. I very much appreciate having you back. It's a pleasure to be here, Darren. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you very much for your appearance last week. Um, for those of you who weren't around, Tim was my guest last week, and he did amazingly until whatever Wi-Fi gremlins on my end cut our conversation short. So I am very, very pleased to have him back with us today. Um, I'm pleased that he could do it at such short notice as well. Um, I do really appreciate it. Um, before we start our interview, um, some congratulations are in order, because when we spoke last week, I mentioned that you... Um, I said that you were doing your your master's degree in in writing for young people. I got that ever so slightly wrong because I know you were in the process of applying and figuring out your acceptances. Um, and in the week since, I believe that you were accepted to your first choice university. I was at Bath Spa. I'm very very excited. Ah, congratulations! That does I kind of after you told me I, I googled the the course and it does seem like a very cool course to do. I'm really pleased. I'm over the moon. Yeah. Yeah, you should be. And in a week where we've seen um, Roehampton closing its classics department and, and really minimising down its humanities, it's lovely to see that there are universities, um, and this is nothing against Roehampton, of course, but it's good to see that there are universities that are still um, able to champion the, the very niche specialisations in the humanities. Absolutely. And I, and I will fight my corner for humanities and these niche subjects because I think they offer so many uh, different skills that are transferable, they enhance a lot of skills that are very, very valuable. And I think there are people who could thrive in those academic subjects that wouldn't be able to succeed quite as well if they were forced to produce, uh, follow the STEM subject, absolutely, which of course are valuable. Yes, absolutely valuable, but not everybody has got the aptitude for them. And no. I know, I know that I wouldn't have the aptitude for them. No, um, I'm very grateful that there are still opportunities for those of us whose brains work <laughs> way that's more creative. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I tweeted the same thing when I saw the news on Thursday. Um, I tweeted about it and I said exactly the same. You know, it, at school I did I did fine in maths and science. Um, I got A's in both at GCSE, but I'm, I'm not a STEM person. My, my interests are much better suited to the humanities, to, to language, to English. Um, and so without those subjects at university, I wouldn't have been able to go, quite frankly, because I wouldn't have coped with STEM subjects above GCSE. Oh, 
Uh, well, congratulations anyway. I do hope it goes Thank well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry that I took us away from you. <laughs> no, wait, no, 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 not at all. That that's the beauty of shows like this is that you know we come with the topic in mind and we will keep it on topic. But it is good to to kind of chat and to to get different opinions. It's it's absolutely, absolutely. Again, yeah. it's what we do in the humanities. We deal with differing opinions and the best ways to either find a middle ground or to understand that you don't need to fall out with somebody just because you don't agree with them. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's a real that's a really valuable skill. Yeah, to, to learn, and I I know it's something that I haven't fully mastered. No, <laughs> myself, but I'm working on it. There goes self improvement. That's what anybody can can Absolutely. aim for. There's always. Oh, I'm very much into betterness. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Fantastic. I was going to say. Yeah. I was going to say too that I think particularly for people that work in education, that are educators, that are in that field. I think it's really, um, it, it's a bit of a cliche to say it's a privilege, but it is to be in a place where you hear those different voices and those different opinions. Um, because I, I think latterly, it's so easy to put yourself in an echo chamber. Yeah. Of like-minded people who, I mean, I do think we tend to, uh, in the same stream yeah with people that think like us um like the same things as, as us and one of the things i miss from not being in a traditional workplace every day is that i don't hear those different voices those different opinions absolutely absolutely it, you know it is important i think for us all to to interrogate our own knowledge um at, at different points and to, to figure out where we are coming from because again almost the opposite of what i said just now you can also listen to other people and you can understand where they come from without agreeing with them you know mm. just just because you hear a viewpoint just because you entertain what someone has to say doesn't mean that you are in favor of what they're saying um it just means that you recognize that their opinion is just as valid as yours absolutely absolutely there we go we've solved that <laughs> yeah, Fair I don't enough. want to get on to like it, it, I don't want to get on to making people go away and cite their sources. <laughs> <laughs> but we like citing sources. We approve of citing sources. Yeah, so, you see someone yeah. having a someone having an outburst on Facebook, and you're just like, yeah, come back to me when this is properly referenced. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that was um, the, one of the biggest changes, in my opinion, um, to sixth form of late has been the introduction of the extended project qualification, the EPQ, which is for anybody not in the UK or um, not in the secondary system, it's basically a dissertation that the students do. So it's a couple yeah. of thousand words um, and they have to do all of the research and, you know, just, just like you do at university because universities were saying that we were sending them 18 year olds who didn't know how to write essays, who didn't know how to do research. Um, and so they brought in this thing. And one of the things I've noticed having been an EPQ supervisor um, for the past three, four years um, is how much better our students are getting now at supporting their argument, um, even in, in non-academic um, non-academic ways. So um, I also teach 
uh, languages at A-level, and a big part of the speaking exam for modern languages is doing the same thing. So you do this research project and you, you cite your sources. But what I found is, as I'm talking to the kids and as we're doing the other part of, um, of the speaking exam, which is a little card about a, a contemporary topic that they just chat about, um, my students will start citing their sources in that bit when they don't have to. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we are preparing a generation for university much better than I felt prepared when I went for my, my first undergrad. Um, but we are also creating a generation, hopefully, that can think critically, as you said, that can go and do the research and can then have evidence, research informed opinions, as opposed to the, the, the echo chamber that you mentioned before. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Yes. Yes. Right, let's talk about children's books, because okay. otherwise people will think that I have massively misled them on Twitter as to what this show is about. <laughs> yeah. And, and wondering, you know, he's supposed to be an expert in children's literature. What is he wittering on about? That's <laughs> right, <laughs> maybe dissertation time, um, because you and I will be working on dissertations at the same time in a couple of years. Um, no. We can come back and have a big rant about it. We'll do a whole show okay. on, on correct Harvard referencing. Okay, <laughs> that sounds thrilling. Yes, it does. <laughs> We're going to have a huge audience for that one. <laughs> oh, so you have um, espoused your love of the humanities. I have. And we know that you are an English or a literature person. But children's literature is a very niche specialism. Yeah. Um, what drew you to it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll put my hands up here and admit that it was absolutely by chance that I studied children's literature in the first place. Okay. Um, so a few years ago, a while ago now, <laughs> I was coming to the end of my degree with the Oak University, which was in English language and literature. And there was a module that I intended to study because I'd done like the second year module in English literature, the next level one wasn't going to run again until the spring. I wanted to study in the autumn, but I thought it's too late. <laughs> I just want to get this done. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I, Brilliant. I, I had one of those moments when I just realized this is 100% my thing. This is what I should be studying. I just felt like I'd found my niche. I'd found my tribe. It was amazing. <laughs> that is, that's brilliant. And and to have done that just because you hadn't done as well in, in a different module as you had mm. wanted, you know, to think I, of how different that path could have been for you. Very much so. And I am so grateful to whatever powers that be that made this flute happen because it led on to me, I mean, I've been encouraged recently by from people to say you say celebrate being you yeah so I did get the highest marks of my degree for my children's literature <laughs> I got an, a distinction overall which brilliant amazing and I've never ever scored that well I was always fairly <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of triggered this real urge to learn more all right, so 
you clearly have um, extensive experience as a reader for both children and and um, more grown-up literature, um, mm -hmm. having done other literature modules. What would you say are the main differences between the two types? Oh, gosh, that's a uh, very interesting question, Darren, um, particularly because I think at the moment there are contemporary trends that are blurring what were the previously accepted distinctions between what is for children and what is for adults. Yeah. And I think the first example of that that springs to mind is when Bloomsbury republished the Harry Potter book yes. for adults. And when I heard that they were going to do that, I assumed it meant the author had written new content that was going to be okay. adult content. Yeah. Um, violence only, obviously. But, <laughs> but then, then it transpired that what Bloomsbury had done was repackaged the, the existing text so the text didn't change at all but it was the the artwork um on the front that had changed yeah to make them um more appealing to adult readers and also so that adult readers could sit and read them on the tube or on the way home from work without yes. they were sitting reading a children's book <laughs> i think uh, someone i'm going to paraphrase this because i can't remember the exact quote i remember that i read somewhere that children's literature helps us get a grip on the world mm -hmm. and adult literature helps us let that grip go i like and that i like that i like that and i do think there's a lot of truth in that because i think you know children are their experience of the world is limited um, because they haven't had time yeah uh, important also to remember that children are learning all the time whether we're intending for them to be learning <laughs> absolutely you know in a structured and organized way they learn yes. all the time and i think that is one reason why children's literature tends to be more restricted than adult literature mm. Yeah, and you can kind of see that just within the ways that libraries and bookshops and things are set out. You know, you walk into a library, you walk into a bookshop, you've got the children's section, but then with the, the, the I don't want to say adult books, with the grown-up books, yeah, you've got um, romances and westerns and thrillers and horror all in their own sections. So it, it's almost like children's books are treated as a genre of their own. Um, and, and almost like the children should be happy that they have that. Whereas we as adults get a much broader range. That's really interesting. I think um, that there is certainly a tendency, isn't there, to put all the books that are for certain age groups. Yeah. You know, these like eight to 11 year olds, for example, and the over 14. What, who, who decides that all over 14 year olds, for example, are going to want to read every single genre or fiction exactly just because they're over 14. Um, I think as well another interesting point that I thought of when you were talking. Uh, oh so you weren't listening? Uh, How rude. You're, no <laughs> I, I was listening and I was listening so intently that I thought that brings me on to another point that I think we touched on 
um, last time I was here that I, I, I'm in my mid 40s. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that I am as much of a 40 something <laughs> as, as 40 something were when I was a part. I feel like I'm more of a playful, I don't want to say childish, childlike spirit. There's one I picked up. Um, you know, Bob Ross, who does the... Oh, love Bob Ross, yes. I know, I know. I mean, it's just serotonin on television, isn't it? <laughs> um, and, and, and it's a book, it's a picture book, and it's Bob Ross quotes. Oh, wow. Next to his art, and it's in its landscape format. And and I just really enjoy sitting and reading that, and the juxtaposition of the words and the pictures, I read it in a very similar way to a child would read a picture book that is for them. Yes. And there's, there's no plot, there's no narrative, but it's still an enjoyable thing to do. It's a relaxing thing to do. And I think, I think you know, we, we, it's easy sometimes to forget that books have got different reasons for existing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the crux of our whole show today is this idea that, you know, in, in English-speaking culture, we kind of disparage um, comic books, because that's my, my specific interest, but picture books as well, as being for children. Um, and, you know, and, and even within that little subset, there's this idea that comic books and, and picture books are for children who don't read very well. Or, you know, they're not real books to be read. Yeah, well, I... I, I... There's, there are a lot of hills that I will die on appearing at the moment. <laughs> and of course, now, I think the Puritans had a lot of influence over early children's picture books. Okay. And I think, and I think that's why they're kind of a didactic thing that carries on through them, um, which we can come back to. But thinking about the complexity of picture books, there's a really famous picture book um, called Rosie's Walk. Yes. And if you know Rosie's Walk, you'll know that, in fact, if you don't know it at all, you can probably tell from the title that it's about a character called Rosie who goes for a walk. <laughs> um, Rosie is a hen and she leaves her coop for a stroll around the farm. And the text is basically, well, from an adult point of view, it's quite mundane. But in Pat Hutchins, illustration see and and they fold out into like gatefold mm -hmm. so i'm pretty sure the text is on the right hand side of the book it's on the right hand page and on the left and spinning over the gutter sometimes you can see the action that's taking place yeah so rose is having her walk but she's being followed by a fox and the fox is never mentioned in the text invariably there is a lot of interaction. Yes. Because, I, um, oh, no, I was just saying, I first encountered Rose's Walk, I think in my first year of teaching, um, I was like a lot of NQTs, I did a lot of supply, um, particularly those of us who graduated into the recession back in, in 2007. Um, and I remember vividly doing this book in a literacy lesson um, with, it was either a year one or a year two class. Um, so, you know, these kids were six at the very old, um, oldest yeah. and, and I was there reading along the story and I could see them whispering to each other and pointing 
And, and they were making that connection between the words that they were hearing, the story that they were hearing was not the same as the story that they were seeing in the pictures. No. And it was, it was quite interesting for them to think they were being treated to, to two different stories. Absolutely. And I, and I think um, they know that they, they, they know they need to verbalize that there is something happening. Yeah. They can see it with their own eyes and they're trying to kind of like, this little like when they whisper to each other i think they're saying you know there's a fox why is no one talking about the fox yeah. we can see the fox and and sometimes I've, I've i've seen when teachers have been reading rosie's walk to their class a little voice will suddenly yell it's a fox yeah yeah because they they feel it's really important that they tell you yes that there is a fox and they're straight away they're kind of launching themselves in a way into the story yeah they're, they're, they're involved in the book in a sense. and also what i think is absolutely wonderful is it's that first glimpse of critical thinking we have to consider what we're seeing with our own eyes yeah as well as what we're being told absolutely and i i don't want to Rosie's walk through an Orwellian lens. <laughs> if that's where we are, that's where we are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's also good for for helping to encourage empathy, um, because you know, in particularly in the early years in Key Stage One, so between the ages of four and about six, there's a lot of discussion of socialising children. Um, you know how we make sure that they are growing up to be. Um, empathetic responsible global citizens and a story like rose's walk where they are not told of the danger but they spot it and they then rush to tell the teacher that there is danger it shows that they are empathizing with rosie you know they are seeing her they know that there is a problem um mm -hmm. and you know they they feel for her you know they've, yes. they've heard enough stories to know that the fox is going to eat the hen yes so they're using that kind of intertextual knowledge to go, okay, there is a problem here and I'm going to tell somebody about it because maybe they can solve it. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, these, the, I, I, I think small children are a lot more switched on. Yes. Things. Um, and it's so easy to dismiss them on account of their age. And I think in that very brief period of time, they have got an understanding. Absolutely. The and they're only limited really by their vocabulary and how they can explain things yeah. to you. And their their worlds are just as, the, the worlds that they live in, you know, at five, six, they're just as nuanced as ours in different ways. Yeah. Um, I think that's easy to forget as adults. Yes. Um, and we, we think, you know, that our worlds are these watercolours or oil paintings or maybe even a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> um, and, and there's just a crayon. But it isn't. It isn't. Oh. And I think and I think it, it, it's a shame to to kind of limit them. Yes. When they are limitless. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when we kind of first started on this little walk 
um, along with Rosie, um, you mentioned about how there were these um, picture books, so what we might consider a child's format, but for adults. Yes. How do you think, or do you think, that, that these different types of books, so picture books versus prose books, for example, um, versus comic books versus poetry, do you think they, um, do they tell different types of stories? I don't think they tell different types of stories. I do think, um, I think they tell stories differently. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, you're going to get romances, you're going to get thrillers, sci-fi, all the genres. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're going to get a narrative that is told in a very different way to a prose yeah. book. Uh, I love prose fiction. <laughs> I wouldn't be where I am today without prose fiction. <laughs> but it's very straightforward, isn't it? You know, open the book, start at the beginning, advance yeah. until you reach the end. And I think these other formats, picture books, comic books, Wordless picture books. They they take that format and they kind of get quite anarchic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of them, I would say, are now these tend to be known as the illustrated texts. Mm -hmm. So um, I would include people like Beatrix Potter. Yes. Dude, would I actually? See, I would say Beatrix Potter and Judith Kerr, that kind of authors. Mm -hmm. I would say their texts are picture books. Yes. But they're, but they're the precursors of the illustrated text. Yeah, okay. And an illustrated text, let's say, Roald Dahl, illustrated mm -hmm. by Quentin Blake, they're illustrated text. Okay. And there, there, the pictures are decorative. So that there, it's just a, a picture of what we're seeing, uh, of what yes. we're being, sorry, of what we're being told. Yes. So you could remove those pictures and the text would stay the same. The story, sorry, you could remove the pictures, keep the text, yeah. and the story will stay the same. Yes. The narrative, the book, the narrative is unchanged, the book still functions in the same way. Yeah. If you take the pictures from Rosie's Walk, the text is still there, but the whole ethos of the book falls over. I think that reader, reader. <laughs> reader participation um carries through into wordless picture books yes where the reader has to do more work and i think certainly with a wordless picture book you've got to look at the pictures and the pictures will guide you but it's down to you to actually fill in the blanks absolutely the, you know between the frames you are in control in yes. a way of that story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think, sorry, I think a perfect example of that is um, Raymond Briggs's The Snowman. Yes. Because you have the original text, which is a wordless picture book. It's a beautiful book. But then a couple of years ago, Michael Morpurgo wrote a prose version. And it's the same story. We've just got the words instead of the pictures. And, and what I find quite interesting reading, the, I love Raymond Briggs, so what I find quite interesting reading the two is that when you read Briggs's version, it's just the pictures, you kind of make up your own story almost as yeah. you go along with it. You, you figure out what the motivation of the boy is to build the snowman. You, you think for yourself about why he's going off with him. What is that excitement that he wants to have? Um, 
Whereas in Michael Morpogo's book, which is, is just as entertaining but in a very different way, you are just being told, you're a spectator of that story. You're not really taking part in it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't know if you felt this reading Michael Morpogo's text that you find yourself thinking, no, that didn't happen. Yes. This, this, isn't, this isn't what actually happened. I think yeah. you'll find you're wrong there. <laughs> yeah. Because ever since, you know, since the first publication of, of the snowman um we've had agency over the story yes and and it becomes it's like a transference of power isn't it from the author to the audience but yeah he's, he's showing you what happens and it's then your responsibility to, to fill in um the rest of the story yeah what one of my favorite words of picture book is by a chap called Gregory Rogers. Okay. Um, and it's not perhaps as well known, well, it's certainly not as well known as The Snowman. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it's as well known here as it would be in, in the States, but it's called The Boy, The Bear, The Baron, The Bard. Okay. And it's, I mean, you can probably tell from the title that it's about a boy <laughs> <laughs> who meets a bear, a baron, and the bard that it refers to is William Shakespeare. Oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, it, it utilises one of my favourite devices in children's fiction, which is a time slip. Oh, okay. So the, the boy starts off in our era and accidentally transports himself back to uh, Shakespeare's London oh wow um and there are no words at all in the whole of the text it's dependent on the pictures but moreover on the structure but what what i really love about this book is that it subtly introduces the concept um so there's the globe theater queen elizabeth turns up <laughs> and and it you can read it either in a very comical way or in a slightly more sinister way okay or with, with a few elements of both um and one thing that gets me every time that i i reread it, it is the pathos the friendship that develops between the boy and the bear yeah and it it happens so, so quickly in terms of frame but you feel it so deeply and, it, and it's magic. Yeah. Um, but clearly I'm not the intended audience for that particular <laughs> picture. It, it would be intended for younger readers, but the experience I'd imagine is very similar. They're going to use those books, that book to, to tell the story in a way that they want to tell it. Yeah. You know, if a girl reading it wants it to be this action packed blockbuster with the boy and the bear, um, that's what it will be. They, they've got that power over the book. Yes. And, and isn't that a beautiful thing for, for children to learn? The fact that everything is down to our perception and two people can look at exactly the same thing, exactly the same book, exactly the same person and see two very different things. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I would hope that that would help, you know, fire up their imaginations and, um, build their confidence to perhaps go away and play with storyboards. Yeah. 
making up their own word list. But, Absolutely. You know, it's it's must be very challenging, I think, to create a story without words. Yes. But as well as challenging, I think it must be quite freeing as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. To, 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 to let your audience do all the work. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but we'll call it a transference of power. I like that. I like that. <laughs> oh, right. We are running low on time. We're going to have to exit soon, hopefully not chased by a bear. Um, but before we do that, could you take a couple of minutes? You've, you've given us a lot of good titles today, and hopefully our audience will go away and maybe look up some of the books um, that you have mentioned if they don't know them already. But are there any in particular that we should be looking out for, either as teachers to use with our classes at any age, you know, from reception, from when they're four, right up to year 13, when they're 18, um, or even any of our parents in the audience might want to read with their children over the summer? Oh, Gosh, uh, where do I start? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I do think everybody needs to have a copy of The Jolly Postman. Yes. By, by um, the Albergs, which is an interactive text which will appeal to young readers that enjoy the story. And I think everyone else will enjoy the intertextual elements. Mm -hmm. um, it predates Shrek in its slightly subversive approach to fairy tales. And the, the the things that you can pull out and read from the envelopes, yeah, I am convinced are a lot funnier for adults than they are for children. Yeah. But oh, absolutely. Yes. That that's the point that we can debate, I guess. Um, no, I, I remember being read the Jolly Pocket Postman in in infant school. So again, I must have been about six, um, and I enjoyed the story. But my teacher was far more into it than I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, but one that I think is, is not entirely dissimilar, but quite, quite, you know, it's, it's more like the um, dark cousin of, of the Jolly Postman. Emily Gravett has written a book called Little Mouse's Big Book of Fears. Oh. And, and it's written in the style of a library book. Um, oh, okay. It's been borrowed dozens and dozens of times and it's a bit battered and, and you can lift flaps and the things that move as you're reading it um it's so heavily done that i didn't actually realize that the second hand copy i'd bought was in library binding and okay. one of the one of the library stamps in it is a genuine library <laughs> I, I thought i thought it was part of this amazing artwork um but what what i particularly love about that book is that it kind of tells us what different fears fall, and then as it reaches the end, it diminishes fear. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and and it's done in such a clever way that you just kind of think differently about the fears that you have. Fantastic. And I think that's a brilliant book. I think you know the world is a scary place. Yes, absolutely. And I think sometimes we have to confront fear and snip it in the bud kind of thing and, and to learn to do things i haven't got long left but on that note yes. barbara throws a wobbler by <laughs> nadia shireen okay absolutely changed my life <laughs> it's a picture book about a kitten called barbara right to learn to deal with a wobbler 
love it. Okay, I can think of a few staff rooms where that might be necessary. <laughs> Take it in and just leave it. Yeah, because I'm I'm praying to anxiety. Okay, reading Barbara Throws a Wobbler helped me to see that I tend to create my anxiety. Interesting. And and, and what to do when I have made it manifest. <laughs> My thanks to Tim for that interview um, and for giving up his time once again to be with us. Interestingly, on the on the topic of anxiety, um, I'm going to segue now into talking about practice um, for the last ten minutes of the show. I've got um, I've got some suggestions for different things that we can use, um, different things that you might want to think about in your own classrooms. Um, and the first book that I would like to talk about is The Sad Ghost Club by Lise Meddings. Now, this is one that has been very popular um, on, on what we call booktube, on, on the literature side of YouTube, um, among young adult readers. And it's a beautifully illustrated comic about a ghost who suffers from depression and anxiety. And throughout it, we have this ghost um, um, it's not clear in the text whether he is actually a ghost or whether this is just how he's feeling when compared to the people around him. Um, but it starts quite beautifully with him having to write an essay and procrastinating on writing that essay. Again, not because he's lazy, but because he is suffering from depression, he is suffering from anxiety. We've got a beautiful double page spread on pages 10 and 11. So quite soon into the book where we can see his swirling thoughts and as somebody who suffers from these things myself i personally think it's a very accurate portrayal of what people go through yes crutches absolutely crutches says that it's a gorgeous book and it is it's it's a beautiful beautiful volume and i think any of us who have any kind of pastoral responsibility so those of you who are um head of head of pastoral care i think any of you who have a tutor group um those of you in independent schools perhaps who have any kind of boarding responsibilities um it's a very good book for helping not just children to understand what they might be going through but maybe also to help their friends understand what they're going through why they might take themselves off why they might um talk incessantly or, or even just a lot about their special interest and that kind of the awkwardness that that looks awkward to an outsider but is in fact just the depression and the anxiety um manifesting um Kretschers also points out that it is a non-gender specific protagonist which is correct um we don't know and it doesn't matter which gender our protagonist, in fact, either of our protagonists, because we eventually meet um, the point of the book, and I'm sorry for spoiling it, is that our our initial character meets somebody who is like him and or her, them, and, and they start this club for the sad ghosts, for the people who feel that same way. And I just think even just having it in a library for a student who might be feeling sad who, who might think that they have anxiety and depression, because that is very much in the zeitgeist. Students, um, even our younger Key Stage 3 students, understand what anxiety and depression are. And so for those who think they might be suffering, they might be able to read the book and go, okay, yes, this is like me. Perhaps I need to tell 
my parents, perhaps I need to tell my tutor, perhaps it's good for me to go and see a doctor. Yes, the accessibility, absolutely. Um, because so much of it is pictures, um, you can see the body language of our ghost. You, you can see them sitting on the sofa away from everybody at the party they go to. You can see the, the ghost that becomes our secondary pr protagonist on their phone. Um, and we eventually learn that they are pretending to text, uh, which I think is something a lot of people have done um, in situations where they feel awkward. So kind of like Tim was saying about Rose's walk, you've got the story that is told through these, these speech bubbles, but you then also have the, not quite a secondary story in the same way, but you have the, the emphasis, you have the extra bits and bobs, the, the extra body language that our students might be able to recognise. So I think if you have any pastoral responsibility in school at all, um, or if you are a perhaps a year five or year six classroom teacher, um, this would be a good one for you to have on your bookshelf. Um, the next book that I have is going to, again, be of particular relevance to Key Stage 2 teachers um, and also possibly to anybody who teaches RS, Religious Studies, at Key Stage 3, and that is the Manga Bible. Um, it sounds like it's one of those how-to-draw-manga books, um, but in fact it's a retelling of um, the Bible um, in, in its entirety. It's not selected stories, it's not selected passages, it is the Bible from beginning to end in manga format. Now we know that manga is cool, it's one of the things that I as a Japanese teacher try and profit from. Um, and we also, those of us who have taught RS, I've taught RS um, to a level and we know how difficult it can be to get students to engage with religious texts now obviously there are some religious texts that cannot be depicted in comic book format um, the quran for instance can't be because of prohibitions against um, depictions of muhammad and other religious icons however if you are studying christianity or judaism and you want an accessible way for your students to access the Bible or the stories from, from the Torah, then uh, the Manga Bible is a very, very good one for you to, to get your hands on. For my fellow MFL Twitterati, I have pulled out just a generic copy. It's um, an issue of The Avengers from April 2015. In fact, there's an advert for, um, for Age of Ultron in the back to kind of give it an age, but it's in French. Um, I just picked it up in FNAC when I was in France at Easter 2015. And there are two ways that you could use this as an MFL teacher in your classroom. The first is that you could use it as a parallel text. If you were able to get the exact same issue in English, you could have a look, you could get your students to have the English version and the French version or whichever language you happen to be teaching, and they could read them both through at the same time. But the way that I have used this is with translation, because when you have small chunks of text, when you just have speech bubbles, that's a much less intimidating translation activity than if you give them a big chunk of prose. Lots of subjects that I teach involve translation. All of my modern languages and my ancient languages do. Um, and I do think that giving students a text of 
you know, even four or five sentences, a paragraph to translate can be quite intimidating, particularly for our beginners. Whereas, you know, I've just opened to a random page in the um, in the comic and, and the first speech bubble says, um, and banner, do you know Doc Green in French? That's all vocabulary that I would expect, um, again, even a year five or six student studying French all the way up through to our A-levels to know. And so this could be a good way to introduce translation to your students um, in a very kind of bite-sized, chunkable format. The final book that I have to recommend is a Japanese manga, um, which I read in translation. I, I do read Japanese. Um, I teach Japanese. Uh, however, I couldn't find a Japanese copy, so I read it in translation. And that is Therme Rome, which is a fascinating manga um, about a Roman architect who through some kind of unexplained water magic, travels through to um, uh, modern day Japan and experiences Japanese baths. And he then takes everything that he learns from the Japanese bath back to ancient Rome and incorporates that into his own construction of Roman baths. Now, I'm not saying that this one is suitable for school because there are depictions of nudity. It's a um, it's a manga about Japanese and Roman baths. You you would expect that. Um, but I was thinking as a classicist, how amazing to look at reception of Roman culture from a country that was not colonized by the Romans. So we are decolonizing our curriculum straight away, and we are looking at how other cultures outside of Europe um, interpret and interrogate what goes on um, or what went on in Roman society. So for any of my fellow classicists or even for, for history teachers, um, you might be able to find things where you can study the reception of ancient texts or, or ancient um, battles or anything really. And you could do that all through the visual format of comics. I don't think we have managed to answer my key question of whether comics and picture books can be considered good literature. I would need way more than an hour and a half to do that. Um, but hopefully, those of you who are already interested in children's literature will have maybe had your, your thoughts about its importance um, reassured by us. And maybe I've given you some more teaching ideas today. And maybe uh, those of you who were a bit unsure about my, my premise to start with, that comics and picture books can be, can be good literature, might have had your minds changed. If you have got some free time in about half an hour, I do encourage you to join our Twitter Spaces chat today. That's gonna to be a very, very interesting conversation that begins at 11 over on Twitter. Um, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having your breakfast with me. And I look forward to speaking with you, to seeing you all next week. Have a fantastic rest of your weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.